Hello and welcome to InfoLinks on the Record. I'm Kurt Teese and with me is Olivia Winkler. And today we're speaking with Bernard Wright, who is the CIO of Ironbow. Welcome, Bernard. Thank you. So we've had the opportunity to serve on a panel with Bernard about data privacy, and we thought we'd spend a little time here in his offices in, where are we? We're actually in Herndon, Virginia right now, not too far from Dulles Airport. I see the signs out there. Yep. Fantastic. Well, thank you for your time. So first, tell us a little bit about Ironbow. Ironbow is a $1.1 billion corporation. So historically, we focused a lot on hardware and software reselling with partners like Dell, Cisco, HP, and other large manufacturers. Mm -hmm. But more recently, we've started to focus a lot more on managed services. Okay. So keeping in mind, the profit margin for reselling is becoming smaller and smaller because so many people are in the space. So we're trying to make sure that we're maximizing our profit and also making sure that we're diversifying a bit more than we have in the past. So a little bit like what we're hearing with Apple going more into services. That's correct. Absolutely. Fantastic. So how did you get here to IT? So with IT, it's, I guess, a long winding story, but yeah. I'm going to boil that down. For the first eight years of my career, I actually worked in the federal government. So okay. I worked for a number of different agencies. So I started off with the Department of Energy, then Department of Transportation, U.S. Customs Service, and the last one was the Administrative Office of U.S. Courts. Wow. And I was doing personnel. Then I figured out personnel was not what I wanted to do and switched over to a nonprofit and started doing finance and contracts administration. Okay. Got married pretty early. Wasn't making enough money. What do you money. consider pretty early? Got married at 22. 22? Yeah, that is pretty me. early. Yeah. Absolutely. It is early. <laughs> I got married early and that's a couple years earlier than me. Yeah. So wasn't making enough money and realized that I needed to switch fields and got into IT because it made more money. Mm-hmm. And it ended up working out for me. And the reason I got into IT is really because I was just fascinated in the complexity of it. Sure. So I get bored pretty easy and IT kept me busy. So Yeah, me too. It's been a pretty good career since that point. And you have a, an athletic background as well. I do. So tell us about that. So in high school, I was football and track. In track, I ran the 400. And in football and high school, I was a defensive back. I was a cornerback. And then when I went to college, I got a little bit bigger and got tired of running after wide receivers, so I turned into a strong safety. So I'm in Boston, so I'm a Patriots fan. So who's, yep. who plays your position there? So not sure. I don't follow the oh Patriots too much. And, you know, after last <laughs> night, I don't follow the Redskins too much either. <laughs> but the position has changed a lot since I played it. Yeah. So I'm uh, somewhere around 5'11", and back when I was playing, I was 2'10". But the position oh, wow. has gotten a lot taller, and it's a lot more athletic than when I played. Yeah, because I've seen, like, Gronk, now that he retired, yeah. he's immediately, yeah. you know, dropped a lot of weight. and Yeah, he changed the position, too. And so the 400, that's uh, metrics, of, but basically once around the track? Once around the track, yeah. For those of us so remembering was... the days in PE when we had to... <laughs> yeah, it's a brutal race. So it's actually the toughest event in track. So I'm a track coach as well. So I'm USA Track and Field certified to be an official and a coach. And the 400 and 800, depending on who you talk to, are probably the two toughest events. Because it's pretty much a sprint. It's all out. It's an all-out sprint. So Mm -hmm. you can imagine how hard a 400 is, running hard around the track one time, Mm -hmm. and 800 is twice that. So what of your athletic background 
do you see kind of helping with your job, what you do today? Do you bring that to, to Absolutely, work? I do. And I think it helps me out a lot. So with track, you have to make sure that you're putting the work in in advance. You have to realize that you're not always going to win. Yeah. You have to realize that there has to be a certain level of discipline in order for you to be successful, which is the same thing being a manager, especially if you're going to be an effective leader. So those are things that I try to bring to my everyday work. Mm-hmm. And how did you get involved in data privacy? We were honored to have you on the panel recently, and you're quite an expert. So how did you accumulate all that knowledge? Out of necessity. Uh, <laughs> so the CIO is obviously the first person who gets blamed if anything goes wrong. Sure. So mm-hmm. it was more out of fear. And I've been impacted a few times as well by breaches. So as I mentioned, I worked for the federal government for eight years, and my records were with OPM. So OPM was breached. University of Maryland was and breached. OPM? The Office of Personnel Management. Okay. So they're the HR branch for all of government. I see. Mm-hmm. So I was impacted by them. I was also impacted by University of Maryland and most recently by Equifax. Mm -hmm. So keeping in mind that each one of those three invested significantly into data privacy, but they were still breached. So what I've tried to do is to, number one, make sure that I am planning to make sure the data stays secure. But in addition to that, making sure that I plan in case a breach does occur. So based on that, did a lot of research, talked to a lot of different people, and that's what I'm trying to put into place. So in the context of GDPR, Mm -hmm. New California regulations, what do you look to as guidance in this area? So GDPR is actually where I start. So GDPR is more of a comprehensive framework of what you should be doing. In the U.S., as we discussed during our panel discussion, it really is not there in the U.S., so that's really what we look to as a framework and keeping in mind that Ironboat, in addition, is in some ways a global firm because we do have clients that do business overseas. Yeah. So we have to be aware of what GDPR lays out. So that's where I start. Then we work backwards to ISO 27000, which is mm-hmm. more physical and logical security controls. We have to do SOX audits for some of our accounts. And there are a number of other things that we take into account as well. So. Like I said, GDPR probably is the main framework that we look to align with, but there are others that we take a look at as well. Right. So during our data privacy event, you talked about how you really look at data privacy from the perspective of a CIO. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate more what you meant by that? Yes. So a CIO has the enviable (laughs) position of having to balance innovation and security. Mm -hmm. So innovation a lot of times means you move quickly. You try things that are brand new. Security means that you move slow and you're a lot more deliberate. Mm. So I don't have the luxury of doing too much of either, Mm -hmm. which means that I have to know about innovation. I have to know about new developments. But at the same time, I have to be aware of GDPR and other security frameworks. And what I try to make sure that I'm doing is taking into account what needs to happen in terms of reengineering the way the business operates, but also making sure that anything new I put in place has security at its core. Mm -hmm. So the two in some ways do conflict. So it's my job to make sure that I'm bringing in experts from both sides to make sure that I'm taking everything into consideration. And within an organization, we hear a lot about committees being formed uh, to examine data privacy. Mm -hmm. Do you see that being a good approach? And who would you recommend participate in that type of committee? Who should be making these decisions? I've had mixed experiences. So whenever you have a committee 
it's that many different opinions. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what happens sometimes is you get paralysis by analysis because everyone wants to show they're the smartest person in the room. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it helps to have someone who's responsible for making the ultimate decision. So I've had the great benefit in my last three organizations, this one included, of having a very strong information security manager who knows all of the different frameworks that are out there. And I ask their opinion first and then work backwards from that point because information security managers tend to be pretty conservative with their approach. They also mm -hmm. obviously want to make sure there are no breaches. They want to make sure that everything stays secure. But at the same time, they're the ones who are thinking about what the impact is going to be if something does occur. So I try to make sure that's built in from the beginning, but also mm -hmm. balance that against what we need to do ultimately. I see. And how much of your work is focused on the role within Ironbow and how much of it is developing, consulting, advising customers on these same things? So my role here at Ironbow is more internally focused. Yeah. My interactions with the outside are really to talk to people about contracts that we might be bidding on mm -hmm. to make sure that we're not introducing risk. Yeah. So right. what I do is more advise our managed service practice and make sure that we are secure internally, making sure the infrastructure is where it needs to be, which is a little different from the past because in previous roles, I was both internally and externally focused. But what that allows me to do here is to make sure that I am a lot more focused on making sure we're secure internally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I know within our business, I mean, we selling software deal with typically license, maintenance agreements mm -hmm. and so forth. And the assessments that we're now getting from IT or as addendums to the contract mm -hmm. on data privacy are orders of magnitude more robust than we have seen in the past. So that seems like certainly a trend that is going to continue to increase. We have spent a lot of time on our internal policies and, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. diligence. And luckily, it's an area where it's sort of part of the business that we're in being familiar with this. But I imagine a lot of companies, this is probably new ground. It is new ground. And what happens is because things are becoming so complex, you have to make sure that everyone who's responsible for supporting that understands what the ramifications are, number one, for anything happening, mm -hmm. but also what their role is in making sure that you're able to execute. So what I've also found is that when you put policies in place, there is that step where you make sure that you have a policy in order to align with certain frameworks, but then you don't do the next step of actually executing. Nice. which has mm -hmm. been a struggle for us, particularly in my last company with the Washington Suburban Sanitary Commission. So with them, we had policies for days yeah. And yeah. for everything, but no one knew what those policies were. In a lot of ways, they were not being followed simply because people didn't understand what their role was in making sure that it happened. So what I try to make sure happens now is that we do have the policy to go along with it, but that it was developed in coordination with everyone who has a part to play in it. So what would you say are some of the biggest risks for people who are listening and uh, may feel that their policies need work, aren't the right state of maturity? What is sort of the downside that should motivate people that this is worth their time? Well, if you are someone who is a managed services provider, a lot of the contracts are calling for policies to be in place. So mm -hmm. if you don't have those policies, you're not able to bid on those opportunities. But number two is the biggest risk goes back to what I said before, 
And that really is making sure that you have a policy that's realistic and that everyone has bought into it mm -hmm. and has actually executed the things that need to be in place in order for that to be successful. So you want to make sure that it's not just shelfware. You want to make sure yeah. it's an actual policy that you're following. So mm -hmm. doesn't do you any good to have all of the policies that you need, but none of them are being followed. So the biggest risk is making sure that you do follow through on them. Now, is that the coach in you that uh, <laughs> comes into play to make sure that everyone's uh, on board? That is a big part of it, absolutely. Yeah, probably the CIO too, because if, like, you know, data breach happens, they mm -hmm. don't care. If they're like, oh, we had the policies, that's nice, but they'll still come after you because they're like, well, they had to be in place. It's absolutely on me. So ultimately, it all comes back to me. So I do have to make sure the policies are there, but I also have to make sure that people are following them. How do you ensure that your company is compliant, but also that your people are now behaving in a way that is compliant with the new adjustment? So with us having certain certifications like ISO 9000 and ISO 27000, we have periodic audits mm -hmm. to make sure that we are following the policies. But then you also do periodic tabletop exercises to prove that people know exactly what they should be doing for different parts of that certification or that compliance framework. And who's conducting those audits? Are they internal, external? So it's an external firm that comes in to do that for us. So we have annual audits and they come in just to make sure that number one, we have those policies in place, but then number two, that we actually have the controls set up. Where do you see this long-term? The new rigor <laughs> we have on the policies, the heightened risks, where do you see this changing business and what's it leading to? So what I'm afraid of is things becoming overly complex because there are yeah. always new frameworks being introduced. There are always new technologies, there are always new breaches and being able to bring all of that together. So I do see that things are going so far that there could potentially be an overcorrection to mm -hmm. make sure that things are simplified. And it really goes back to what I was saying around making sure that people understand how to do certain things. So for us, we are, like I said, we have compliance certifications for ISO 9000, 27000. We're looking at CMMI and a few others as well. And each one of those things has certain controls that have to be in place. At a certain point, you become so complex that you're not able to do anything. Yeah. You still have to be able to move forward. You still have to be able to do business and you still have to be able to put new innovations in place. Mm -hmm. So what I see happening is that at a certain point, people are just gonna push back and say this isn't realistic anymore. Yeah. Right. Slowing things down. So yeah. let's talk about the innovation. So setting aside the policy side and mm -hmm. the risk side for a second, a CIO in all the roles that you've been in, what are some of the exciting things that you've seen you've done to leverage technology? So the most exciting thing, well, I'm not going to say the most exciting thing, <laughs> but one of the exciting things I did was at my last company. Mm -hmm. So from the day I walked in to uh, two and a half years later, I was focused on a new billing system. Okay. So we were going from a 16-tier rate structure to a four-tier rate structure. And the reason we had to do that is because there was a study that said that our 16-tier rate structure was discriminatory towards some of our clients. Hmm. So we put that four-tier rate structure in, but the problem was that the existing billing system couldn't support the four-tier rate structure. Yeah. So had a two-year project to put in a new billing system, which was replacing a system that was, I believe, 25 years old, wow. mainframe based. So that was number one. Mm -hmm. But then in addition to that, we also put a mobile workforce management system in to manage our resources in the field. 
and a work asset management system all at the same time. So that was interesting because it changed something that had been operating a certain way for decades. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And also getting the people who had been there for decades to support this new system. So it was really the people side of it that made it fun. So not just technology, but the whole change management, business process, reengineering, organizational change management. And then, of course, there was a security component in there as well to make sure because the mainframe was very secure. Mm -hmm. So we were going to a web based system that could potentially expose some vulnerabilities to us. Okay. Mm -hmm. And what is your sort of bias towards cloud on premise? Everyone seems to have kind of a. So I've gone back and forth on that issue. Yeah. The reality is you can't stay away from the cloud. And I know that a lot of manufacturers do want you to move to the cloud, but there are reasons for that in some cases. It's more of a predictable revenue model for them. Sure. But Mm -hmm. for us, it really is very tough to say exactly how much we're going to use of any particular thing. And it does expose some vulnerabilities as well Mm -hmm. because you do lose control. So I do realize that in some cases we're going to be forced to the cloud, but I still have people that support our on-premise applications and we do have control over those things. So I do like to make sure that it is, it is a mix of both, that we are getting the innovation that comes from going to the cloud, but that I also maintain some level of security as well. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking because uh, this weekend I was trying to figure out all the photos that I've accumulated <laughs> that are on a... Uh, old Apple Mac that is in the utility closet Mm -hmm. and trying to figure out if I have one place where all like the family photos are stored and I have some of them on the Apple cloud service. I have some that are now because everyone's offering, you know, Mm -hmm. free storage. Amazon has something. Google has something. But I'm realizing that the photos are probably spread among all these environments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some are still on the computer. And how do I find out, how do I get one place that I know is secure, that everything is located? And it probably is a parallel to what most organizations, you get kind of the silo effect in a lot of different repositories, but what is your master repository? How do you govern them all? And part of it is that people do fear giving up that control, just like I said before. Mm-hmm. You know that when you go to a cloud or when you go to a certain provider, in some cases you're locked in. Yeah. And you know that you have to continue down that path no matter what. And I'll give you an example. When I was with Prince George's County as CIO, we had a provider who will go unnamed <laughs> who convinced us to go to an online data warehouse. Okay. And it worked great. So the first year they gave us a discount on what the licenses would cost us, but then next year went up a little bit more, second year went up even more, and by the third year it became so cost prohibitive that it really started to impact our budget. But at that point people had gotten so used to the service that we didn't have a choice but to stay with them. So that's also what tends to happen with those photo providers. So they'll start off free, and a couple of years later once you're really used to using it, then the price comes. And that's what people are afraid of. Same thing with Office 365. It starts off and it's very easy to migrate to. The service that's provided is a little bit better in some cases than your internal exchange administrators. Mm -hmm. But then a few years later, it just becomes so expensive that you're trying to figure out a way to get away from it, but you're already there and you can't go Mm -hmm. backwards. Which kind of goes back to the 
off-site storage yep. model. Uh, a lot of customers we deal with find themselves trapped. You send everything to storage and then realize it's very difficult to destroy. Mm-hmm. You're not sure what you have there and you become yeah. trapped in this model. A lot yep. of parallels yeah. there. It's called a foot in the door method in psychology. Yeah. It's, yeah, so it's like there's two methods. So it's like foot in the door and face in the door. Yep. So face in the door. Yeah. So if you want somebody to do something for you, it's either better to go like ask them something small first. Somebody's like, Oh Kurt, can you get me a pen? And then next week I'm like, Oh, can you grab me a coffee? And buy like a build up over time because you've done nice things for me before, I could ask you for like fifty bucks and you'd be like, Yeah, I do nice stuff for Olivia all the time. Mm-hmm. Or the reverse is you ask somebody for like a huge ass that you wouldn't want. Like I'd be like, Kurt, can I borrow a thousand dollars? You're like, no way. I'd be like, okay, well, can I at least have twenty for Starbucks? You'd be like, oh, well, that's so much better than the other one. You're more likely to give in. I have to remember that. Yeah. So you either do a huge ask, <laughs> or you ask face a little in the door? thing. Yeah. Huge ask is face in the door. Okay. And then small ask is foot in the door. So like those vendors, mm. they're like, oh, it's super easy. They get their foot in the door, and three years down the line, they're like already in the room, and you're like, you know what? I can't go back because you've said yes to them all before. Interesting. Hmm. So now let's learn a little bit more about you and your background. So we've heard about the organizations. You got married uh, relatively young, <laughs> athletic background. Are you native to, to I Washington? Am. I grew up in Hillcrest Heights, which is in Prince George's County. And I... I'm from Boston, so Prince George's County. So it's right outside of D.C. So okay. it's the second largest county in Maryland. Montgomery County is the largest. All right. So Prince George's County has about 900,000 residents. It's part rural, part suburban. Mm-hmm. And the challenges with Prince George's County really are because of that mix. So growing up, lived in a duplex and had the great benefit of having a father who worked very hard. So he worked for the post office for 35 years. Oh, and really? Mm-hmm. I really got my work ethic from him. Yeah. And I'll give you an example there. When he retired after 35 years, he had so much leave saved up. They had great benefits, right? Yeah. So Mm -hmm. his whole last year, he was able to retire early because of the leave he had saved up. I don't remember seeing him sick growing up. And I would always see him get up and go to work. He worked at night. Mm -hmm. And my mother stayed home and really made sure that we were focused on school. So that was that growing up. And from there, like I said, I got married early and moved to different places around Prince George's County. But I think that living in Prince George's County did give me a certain element, you know, because looking back it Prince George's County doesn't have the best reputation. So I think it gave me a certain edge that makes me a, a little more competitive. In well, the what's, what's the bad reputation? Where is it? Well, uh, Prince George's County has the reputation in the region of being it's a higher crime rate, not great schools. So it's a rougher area. It is a rougher area. Okay. And my mother knew that and made sure that I went to private schools. Okay. But Mm -hmm. I still had to come home. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the neighbors and people that I played with, they were people that went to the public schools and, you know, they were the ones who were in fights and everything else. So being around that also gave me a certain element that made me not back down. So my mother made sure I stayed away from all of that and made sure I went to boarding school. And, you know, really, if I didn't have that combination of growing up in Prince George's County and going to boarding schools and all of those different things, I almost certainly wouldn't be where I am. So one thing that I do try to do is I try to deconstruct what makes me who I am, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because I do know that I've done very well Mm 
And something that is pretty obvious to me is that you don't see a lot of people who look like me, black males, who have done as well as I've done. So what I try to figure out is how I can get more people who are minorities to be as successful as I am. Yeah. And what are the things that makes that happen? Which is where I say my neighborhood, Mm -hmm. the fact that my father worked hard, the fact that my mother stayed home, the fact that I went to private schools, all of those different things probably put me in position. But is Mm -hmm. there a way to short circuit that and to make it so that a person who didn't have all of those things is still equally as successful as I am? Yeah, that's really powerful. I mean, you know, I was looking at your LinkedIn before and I see that you're a track coach, volunteer. You've won a lot of volunteering awards for um, groups that, you know, support minorities. And in one of your articles, you talk about, Bernard writes on LinkedIn, and so I was reading some of his articles. And one is called Creating Luck for Others, and you talk about these mentors that you have in your life. Can you share a little bit about the mentors that you've had? So at the time... I really didn't look at them as mentors. Mm -hmm. I was just talking to people about what it was that I wanted to do. And as I said before, I do like challenges. I always feel like I should be further along than I am. So it's probably the athlete in me. I'm trying to win all the time. (laughs) And I would say when I was a finance and contracts administrator, I want to be in IT because I want more money. Mm -hmm. Then with another position, I'm a systems engineer now, and I'd love to be able to run technology for an account. And thankfully, the people that I was talking to gave me those opportunities. So I try to make sure that I'm doing the same thing for others as well. So I just had a few great people along the way who really gave me those opportunities. So the first was Frank Beetle de Palomo, who was at the Center for Community-Based Healthcare Strategies. (laughs) And we were focused on HIV and AIDS prevention. Mm And He was just a very well-rounded guy who I had a lot of respect for. He wasn't that old at the time, I believe. If I remember correctly, Frank was 33, (laughs) and I was probably 25. Mm -hmm. And talked to Frank and said, hey, Frank, how did you get to where you are? And he was very gracious with this time and told me. Fast forward a few years later to Rob Holder when I was working at EDS, the Electronic Data Systems, which was acquired by HP had a similar conversation. Rob was a retired lieutenant colonel from the Air Force, and he told me about his story and gave me a similar opportunity to be able to move up. So what I try to do is make sure that I'm very open with my time whenever young people come and talk to me, no matter how much time it takes, and Mm -hmm. to give them advice about how they can get to where I am at this point. And I believe, I sincerely believe that if I stop doing that, then my success goes away. Yeah. I feel like a lot of what's gotten me to where I am is the fact that I've been doing the same thing that others have done for me. And I'm afraid of not doing that moving forward. Right. So with the athletics, is that which came first? Were you introduced? Did you realize you were fast and start running and then start developing the discipline, the winning attitude? Or did you have that and look for a way to apply it and athletics were just like you could have played the violin, like which drove the other? That's a great question. So (laughs) I was very athletic growing up. I was always fast. I was always, I could do things that other people couldn't. And then I had to find a way to channel it. So I wasn't disciplined. So even with football, the reason that I ended up not being in NFL is because I wasn't disciplined. Mm -hmm. I wasn't disciplined enough to chase a wide receiver on his routes and therefore you give up a catch. Same thing initially in my career. So I was smart. I 
I remember being in school and being able to finish my test before most people in the class. And what would happen is instead of me sitting there quietly, I would distract everyone else who yeah. was taking yeah, their test there. still and get in trouble. Yep. So I had to learn that it wasn't enough just to be smart. It wasn't enough to have certain skills. There also has to be discipline. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I, ha- that I had to learn the hard way because I lost opportunities because I wasn't disciplined enough. Mm-hmm. I was listening to another podcast. We were talking about our favorite podcasts earlier. And they used a quote that said, it's not about motivation. It's about discipline. Uh, and I thought that was interesting. And I've been reflecting on that, that a lot of things, you know, okay, am I going to go work out today or you know, get this task done, it's not really looking for the motivation. It's mm-hmm. looking and realizing I have to have the discipline. I know what I need to do. I just need to mm-hmm. commit to doing it. And that's very true. And especially when you're working with other people, because a lot of times it's easier just to do yourself. But discipline right. forces you to mobilize your team and to get them to be able to do it. And that way you're able to scale more effectively than if you had just done it yourself. So what's your morning routine? How do you, how do you, speaking of discipline, so how disciplined is your day? What do you, uh, so I wake up every morning at 4.15. That's what I'm looking for. I wake up at (laughs) 4.15. I go downstairs and I have a gym in my basement. I'll do a few things, mostly cardio. I need to do more weights. And then at about 5.10 or so, I'll get in the shower and I leave out the house by 5.45 every morning. Wow. So this morning I was at work at 6.30, and I'll wow. stay probably today until about 5.30. It'll take me an hour and 10 minutes to get home. I'll go home, get my clothes out for the next day, have dinner before 8 o'clock, have to make sure I eat before 8 o'clock, and then I'll try to relax from there. And it's the same thing over and over again. So I have my days planned out almost down to the minute. So there is a wow. certain level of discipline to it. That's wow. incredible. I think my life would be significantly better if I could shower in under seven minutes. Can't do it. Like, <laughs> yeah. I go to the gym in the mornings, too. So I get up at, like, between, like, 4.50 and, like, 5.15. I'll be at the gym around, like, 5.30. But, like, I have to drive to the gym, and then I have to come back. And then there's, like, my shower and, like, getting ready, like, having to do the makeup, like, get yourself ready for work is just, like, my witching hour. And, like, no matter what time I get home, what time I get back, I'm always, like, so work by like 830. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. like I need to speed well, up like you. Well, thankfully, I don't have to put the makeup on. Yeah, that, that helps. <laughs> I've drastically reduced the time it takes and still. Nice. <laughs> All right. So for those of us who are not going to wake up in the dark <laughs> early in the morning. So what do you do to to relax? You're very driven, very motivated. Mm-hmm. What's the relaxing side of Renard? So part of the reason that I get to work early is because I do spend a certain amount of that time meditating. Okay. And meditation means different things to different mm-hmm. people. So I do take 10 minutes just to focus on mindfulness. So there's an app that I use called the Insight Timer. And mm-hmm. just focus on whether it's success, motivation, whatever it is that I want to focus on for that day. And spend 10 minutes thinking about a thought. Mm-hmm. So it could be, I'm going to be productive. I'm going to get this thing done today and just focus on that for 10 so minutes. So one particular thought. On one each. particular okay. thought. And the reason I focus on a thought is because it's next to impossible to focus on nothing. Mm-hmm. Right. And that way I can kind of keep the other thoughts from coming in. And after that, I have three books that I read every morning, a different passage in each book. So my favorite book is by Khalil Gibran called The Prophet. So it talks about a lot of different things. Is he the one that did the namesake? He is. Okay. So he 
talks about love, he talks about family, he talks about death, marriage, a lot of different things. So I'll just read a chapter of that. Mm-hmm. Then there's another one by Rumi. It's the little book of poetry. I'll okay. read some of that. Mm-hmm. Then I'll read John Maxwell's The Daily Reader. So every day has something different. And what each one of those books does is it gives me something different. So that's the way that I focus on mindfulness because you have to be very deliberate mm-hmm. in the way that you operate. And I pride myself on being even too. So no matter what comes up, I try not to get too upset about it. The flip side of that is you can't be too elated either yeah. because you know that that's not going to continue. So I try to make sure that I'm very deliberate about that. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, when I'm riding home, for a lot of people, an hour and 10 minutes in traffic is just frustrating. Mm-hmm. But what I do is I listen to audiobooks. And what the audiobooks do is it gives me an opportunity to really focus on what someone else is saying instead of focusing too much on my thoughts. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. I found that I do tend to get stressed out if I mm-hmm. just sit there and think. So yep. sometimes right. I try to distract that by focusing on what someone else is saying. And the books allow me to do that. So what types of books do you listen to? So right now I'm listening to The Skeptic's Guide on the Universe. Oh, so wow. this is a guy who really emphasizes critical thinking. Uh-huh. So he focuses on a lot of controversial topics like evolution, religion, dinosaurs and how they came to be. And it just tells you how to focus on what your perspective is and not to really take anyone else's word for it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. So what are some of the guilty pleasures that you listen to? <laughs> so guilty pleasures that I listen to. So I love techno. Really? Yeah, absolutely I do. So What's techno? Techno is electronic dance music. Yeah. The, oh, okay. Yeah, so I listen to... I always thought you were talking about books. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, no, so what no, is my, my, my guilty pleasures are music. Okay. So I love music, so... Is that like Marshmallow? The guy with the big Marshmallow DJ? This sounds like a right, maybe I don't sounds know what like a right. So uh, Tiesto, um, there's some other ones. Calvin Harris is a, is a I, okay. Oh, Calvin yes. Harris, I recognize. Yeah, so All right, that's my guilty pleasure, and people would be surprised to know that I listen to EDM. So me and a few buddies used to go every year. They're going this year. I'm not to Austin City Limits. Oh sure, which is a very yeah. big music festival in Austin. Yeah, I just can't make it this year. And I'd be on the stage listening to EDM, and these guys are listening to. Tame Impala or something else, you know, mm-hmm. but we all like our own things. Yeah. Very well, nice. Bernard, I wanted to say, like, you talked about the meditation and then, like, you having your passions in music. And I think I've seen, like, from these podcasts, the people are the most successful are also the people that do take that time away from work. Like, you know, there's, like, kind of this perception in the world where it's like you have to always be on, you have to always be working, like, rise and grind type of mentality. And, but from talking to people who are successful and have climbed the ranks, like, I'm learning at least and seeing that really it's important to take that time for yourself because you can't be good for most of your day if you're not taking time to like rest, recharge and, you know, I completely agree. So you have to recognize the signs of burnout. Whenever burnout is coming, you have to do something drastic to correct it. So I try to make sure that I'm building certain things in up front. So lately I've been taking a weekend trip every month, Mm. me and my wife. Mm-hmm. So next, we're going to Vegas for my birthday next month. <laughs> oh, no. have and you been to Las Vegas before? I have, several okay. times. Because so I, I used to live in California, so we did some pretty regular trips to Las Vegas. Yeah, yeah. so guilty pleasure once again. <laughs> so we're going to Vegas. Uh, we have a cruise coming up, and that's just to make sure that I'm getting away from work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because what happens is you can 
just grind away and try to focus on all of the issues, but then you get to a certain point where you're not productive anymore. Mm -hmm. And the quickest way to be able to reset that is to just get away from the situation, think some, and then come back to it. Mm-hmm. So I've become very good at making sure that that happens up front. Yeah, really embracing that work-life balance. Yep. So what role does your wife play in this? Is she the one that is pulling you away, saying, okay, it's time to chill out a little bit, let's do something, or is she driving you? Where she fit into this? She does both. Okay. She does both. So my wife is absolutely incredible. She's another one where I would not be where I am without her. So as I mentioned, I got married at 22, and she's been the driving force saying that, okay, Bernard, you're being mediocre now. Mm. She will actually say that and encourage me to go a little bit further. And I think that in a lot of ways, she has taken a back seat to my career. And I'm not asking that anyone do this. And I have three daughters and certainly wouldn't encourage them to do that. But whatever works for different people mm-hmm. tends to vary. But with her, she's a hairstylist and she's always had the flexibility of being able to adjust her hours and to make sure the kids were where they needed to be. But she can also recognize when I'm a little on edge or need to do something and she'll just take the initiative to schedule a trip to say, Bernard, you're going no Mm -hmm. matter what. So she knows when. Yeah. And she's the one person I can't say no to. Sure. (laughs) So what are the ages of the girls? So my daughters are 16. 20 and 22. Also, I have a son who's 24 and he's in the Marines. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Where's he stationed? So he's stationed in Cherry Point, North Carolina, but mm-hmm. he just got deployed to Uganda this past oh, weekend. My goodness. So he no just kidding. went down there. Wow. Yep. So I won't talk to him for, in theory, he said he, I might not talk to him for six months. So oh you just take it on i guess there is a certain level of faith that he's just okay because he is very well trained and Mm -hmm. this is actually his first real deployment he's been deployed to thailand uh philippines and to korea Mm -hmm. but those are more fun trips compared to what he's going to be doing now right that's i mean scary but it's good that you have your faith in him and i was reading on your linkedin about your daughter just had like an interview and you wrote like all these things like the be- like top 10 things to do yeah. in an interview that was really insightful yeah and that's my oldest daughter who's in her last year of college so she's the one daughter who listens i think to everything i say which seems <laughs> counterintuitive because she is the oldest but she always comes in and asks for advice whereas my 20 year old daughter who enlisted in the navy after two oh. years of college she said college isn't for me mm-hmm. just went in and enlisted in navy doesn't listen to anything I say. <laughs> I think she's the most like me. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it always is. Yep. Like the one that like, but you butt heads with the most, you're like button heads with you. That's right. Just your younger version of yep. me. So did they get your athleticism? They did. And I believe that my daughters are more athletic than I was. Yeah. So the oldest daughter played four sports in middle school. She played basketball, soccer, track, and softball. Wow. The middle daughter who, she's an incredible athlete who decided to give it all up, (laughs) played soccer, gymnastics, and ran track. The youngest is still running. She runs for um, her high school. The girls are national champions for like three years running. Oh my gosh. And she used to play soccer, but when she went to high school, the coach said, you're giving up soccer because we don't want you to get injured and you're just focusing on track, but she's all American. Wow. And I was never all American. So with your coaching, have you coached your kids or is it, how did you get in that? 
So I coached all four of my kids uh, in track. And mm -hmm. the reason I did that is because track is one of the sports where I could just take all of them to one practice. Mm -hmm. Having four kids yeah. was a handful. I didn't want to run to a lot of different sports yeah. <laughs> and became very good at it simply because I wanted to spend more time with my kids. But even my youngest daughter, if I see that she's not performing where I think she can, then I'll take her aside and do some individual training with her. And it's worked well. So her fastest times since she's been in high school have all been with me. Oh, is that right? If her high school coach is listening, I'm pretty sure he's going to argue. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mentioned I had a son who, he was a distance runner, and I ran distance in high school, but I wasn't very fast. So I sort of found what I could do, but it was very special to see both boys have speed that I never had. But I would take him to the track and do what I could coaching was mainly run faster and do it again. <laughs> so what are the things that you have found? Like, how do you get that extra, that next level? So running, it's the biomechanics that I think a lot of people don't focus on. So I've found that a lot of coaches who do have a pretty high level of success, and a lot of that is because they have talent coming in, mm -hmm. don't focus on how people are running. So what I do specialize in is taking a look at whether a person is leaning backwards, whether their arms are moving the way that they should, how their foot is striking the ground. And if you make slight adjustments, you can get a couple of seconds off just on one lap. So with my daughter, last year I saw that her arms were moving a little too much. Mm -hmm. So what I focused on is just cleaning her arms up so that they were going up and down cleanly. And she dropped two seconds off. Another thing that I did last year is in her indoor season, I saw that she wasn't able to sprint because a lot of her training was more focused on distance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what I did is I went and took her to the track and focused on some speed workouts. And as a result, her time dropped from 220 indoors to 216, which is still her PR. Wow. So. And at those levels, every second is yeah. That was huge. That was huge. I think that made her third in the state and she oh was a gosh. sophomore at the time. Wow. The wow. coaches don't know I did that, so they took credit for it. <laughs> like, we did our training is great. And I said, yeah, it is. <laughs> That's fantastic. So as we sort of wrap up here, what are some of the final thoughts that you can share with us? You have such a wide and varied background and so much to learn from your experience. What are the things that uh, you sort of would want to leave with the audience? So I do try to focus on the career pipeline. So what I would do is give advice to young people that are looking to be CIO mm -hmm. or IT leaders. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what I would say is that for me, it really was a matter of me understanding that there had to be a certain level of discipline. You do have to have mentors that you target to see mm -hmm. how they've gotten to where they are. But you also have to be flexible and look at your own weaknesses. Make sure that you're constantly examining yourself and addressing those things that might be impediments to success. And for me, that really was the key to me getting to a certain level. Because as I said before, I'm always challenging myself to do more. So I had to take a step back in some cases to understand why I was not realizing this, the success that I expected to have. And in a lot of cases, it was because I was not doing certain things. And what I would encourage people to do is to spend time looking at themselves and to figure out what they need to do in order to get to the next level. And talk to people around you because oftentimes people are seeing things that you might not realize. And if you address those things, then you are able to move forward. 
Fantastic. Well, I certainly am motivated just <laughs> being here and listening to this. I don't know if I'm going to be waking up uh, at 4 a.m., but oh, uh, <laughs> fantastic. Well, we certainly appreciate your time, both in this and uh, uh, serving on the panel, and look forward to working with you uh, more in the future. Thank you both. It was a pleasure talking to you. Fantastic. Thank you, Bernard.